You're listening to the Food Freedom Life Podcast. My name is Brittany Allison, and I spent six plus years stuck in diet binge cycles, hating my body, and envying others who seem to have it all because I never felt enough. What I discovered in my journey to food freedom and becoming a registered dietitian is this. You can either live your life at war with your mind or learn to work in sync with it. So if you're ready to learn how to be in tune with yourself and evolve your life, welcome to the show. Before I dive in, I wanted to remind you that if you sign up for my group coaching program before December 15th, you will receive a bonus 60-minute one-on-one session with me. Group coaching is such an amazing space. I cannot speak more highly of it. It provides you with an opportunity to really practice applying intuitive eating in real-life scenarios and to receive feedback from me, your coach, as well as the other members. It equips you with the knowledge and confidence to make lasting changes in your life, and you're going to come away from this experience with the tools and skills you need to make more conscious and in-control choices, develop a healthier relationship with food, have more positive body image and achieve your goals. If you are interested in learning about intuitive eating and how you can make it work in your life, signing up for group coaching is an amazing way to get started. Head over to brittanyallisonrd.com slash group hyphen coaching to learn more and sign up now. Welcome back to the show. I am here to talk about food addiction today and this is a very controversial topic and it's something that every single time I talk about it, I get a million comments back saying I'm wrong, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to make a podcast episode about it and really dive into food addiction, why you might be feeling addicted to food or to sugar, the research, everything. So if you're listening and you start to feel yourself getting defensive about anything, I would really encourage you to take a deep breath, acknowledge the discomfort and do your best to sit with it. This might really challenge your beliefs and what you've been told about food, but this is the brave space, guys. We are learning here and growing and evolving And this is really going to help you, I promise. I hold this idea of food addiction very lightly. I really want to respect my client's experience and your experience of what feels like addiction. I want to validate what makes them feel vulnerable to overeating on food and respect that and work around it. But I think that the concept of food addiction can, for some people, and certainly not all people, cause them to feel less capable of developing a different relationship with food. And I would hate for that to be the case because for the majority of people, certainly every client I've worked with, we've been able to get them to a better place than where they started, you know, when they begin their journey. And I feel very hopeful about people being able to heal their relationship with food. So keeping that in mind, I want to hold space for the fact that you feel addicted to food. And that is very valid. But I am also going to rip off the band-aid with a very controversial statement that food addiction is not a real addiction in the true sense of the word. Same with sugar addiction. And a lot of times when people talk about food addiction, they're referring to high carbohydrate foods or foods that are high in fats. And I'm not saying this to invalidate you. I'm not saying that food addiction is not a real addiction to, again, invalidate you. This is not an invalidation episode, and I'm just here to tear down your view of yourself and what's happening with you and make you feel like crap. I want to talk more about this topic because it's a good thing that you're not addicted to food. Because true addictions, you have to live with for the rest of your life. And I feel like this is controversial too, because people seem to almost want it to be an addiction because it rationalizes the way that they're feeling and it shifts blame away from them. They feel like if it's not an addiction, then the only other alternative is that it's their fault and they're acting this way around food because of them. But there is another option for why you're acting this way and it is not your fault. 
So people do not like when I say that food addiction is not a real addiction because they feel like they've been struggling with this for years. They're having such a hard time. And that is very real. You can absolutely feel addicted to food. And if you're feeling that way, my heart really does go out to you because it's it's so tough. So if the statement that food addiction is not real makes you feel some type of way that's negative or it's triggering, I just really want you to reflect on why you want food addiction to be real. And I think some people want it to be real too because they're just they're feeling it. They're they're feeling something that is absolutely real. And this label of food addiction is part of a much deeper issue with food and bodies, you know, because I think the other part of this is that these individuals who are restricting because they're striving for a thin ideal or they're feeling like their body, it doesn't fit in society. So I think it's just a really nuanced and difficult conversation. And I lived in that feeling for six years, but as somebody who technically fits into a socially acceptable body, even if I was never really the ideal, and even if I felt bigger than the standard at the time. So I totally get that, but I can't fully comprehend the lived experience of somebody in a larger body who's feeling this. And so when I say food addiction is not real, you might think I'm saying it's all in your head and you're like, no, the feeling is real. And I 1000% agree that the feeling is real. So let's just get that very, very clear. I'm not trying to gaslight you by saying you're not feeling anything and you're making this up. You are absolutely feeling something, but it's not an addiction in the true sense of the word. So to start, I want to talk more about the theory on food addiction and define that. Food addiction theory is that it's a chemical addiction. So when we're talking about addictions, there's really two main categories, and that's chemical addiction versus process addiction. And I don't think that it's too far from the truth to kind of take, you know, certain eating disorders and draw parallels between that and process addictions, because those things are more like the behavior itself is addicted. So those are things like gambling or sex addiction or things that you're not necessarily ingesting as a substance, but it's more so the behavior. And chemical addiction is really what we traditionally know about substance addictions like alcohol, methamphetamine, cocaine, all that kind of stuff. And the good thing about it being compared to that in one sense is we do have an understanding of how dopamine and serotonin works when it comes to chemical addictions. And that actually helps us to distinguish why food doesn't make sense as a chemical addiction because the way that it affects those neurochemicals in the brain are really, really different from substances. So for example... If we're talking about somebody taking cocaine, it's going to have an effect mainly on two main neurochemicals, which are serotonin and dopamine, which are ones that those often come up when we talk about food addiction. But when it comes to the effect of serotonin and dopamine, the effect with cocaine is almost like immediate, right? So it's going to hit the bloodstream, have that effect super quickly. And that period of time that it's effective is not going to be super long and then it's going to die down and they're going to need to take that drug again. When it comes to food, when we're talking about, for example, somebody having a low blood sugar, there's this 15-15 rule. So you need to wait at least 15 minutes to see if whatever you've ingested has that effect on your blood sugar that you need for it to bring it up so you're not low anymore. So even from that basic concept, we know that food doesn't hit the bloodstream that quickly. It has a lot slower of an effect. And also food isn't just, I mean, unless we're literally just eating table sugar, there's going to be other components of that food that also need to be broken down that slow that food being broken down. And the dose effect is very different than if somebody is ingesting a drug. I think that another thing that people bring up when it comes to food addiction is that because the fact that binge eating disorder itself exists, that means that food addiction is a thing because 
people are consuming large amounts of highly palatable foods and they can't stop. But one of the things that really differentiates between binge eating disorder specifically and somebody who is, say, addicted to a drug is that you have to go without drugs until you die. Same with alcohol. If you're addicted to alcohol, you go to AA, you work on your sobriety for the rest of your life. There's no point where you're like, oh, I'm cured. It's all good. I no longer have an addiction. I can do drugs or drink freely and I can just casually have a glass of wine and everything's fine. And of course, different people will take different approaches to their sobriety, but typically you work for abstinence and you're now living in that forever with a chance of relapse. But you can't live a healthy life without eating food because you are literally going to die. So we're talking about completely different things in terms of essential needs for survival. And also when it comes to applying treatment methods for substance abuse versus treatment methods for people who have eating disorders or people who feel like they're addicted to food, when it comes to what's going to be effective, you cannot use a substance abuse recovery model and have that be effective long term. Because if you treat food addiction the same, there's of course OA, which is Overeaters Anonymous, and that has the same approach of abstinence, right? And staying away from trigger foods or binge foods. It's all about abstaining. But you're going to have relapses. You're going to have moments of quote unquote weakness, and it's not going to last forever. They even say that within the program. And now you are going to have to fight this thing for the rest of your life. Why would you want that to be true? The main reason that this abstinence model does not work, and I've worked with so many clients who have been to OA before, it, it doesn't work. And it's because we need food to live. We do not need alcohol or drugs to survive. You can abstain from drugs or alcohol. You cannot abstain from food. You need to face food and eat food every single day, multiple times a day. It never stops. You will always need it. It's not going anywhere. So you have to figure out how to be around food for the rest of your life because you have to eat every single day, every single day until you die. And if you have an issue with food, that can be really scary where you have this really uncomfortable, miserable, suffering relationship with it. And then you have to eat it every single day. That is hard. And with drugs or alcohol, assuming you're in a place where your body is not reliant on it, there's no major repercussions from not having it. Whereas if you don't eat food, your body is going to have real biological responses to that. It's not going to function properly. It's going to shut down. Or if you don't eat enough carbs or you don't eat enough of the foods that truly gives your body energy and that your body naturally craves, your body is biologically wired to get as many carbs as possible, to get sugar, to get fat, to get calories. Because we used to be people who were in the wilderness picking berries and hunting, and we couldn't get enough calories consistently. So when there was food available, we had to eat as much as possible to save up the energy for those times where there wasn't enough food. It was feast and famine. There was food insecurity. There wasn't a steady, reliable source of nourishment. So it was eat it all, save up, and then use that stored energy until the next feast. And in the modern world that we live in, for the most part, there's food everywhere. There isn't that same need to feast and famine. It's not what we need to do to survive anymore, but it's still in our DNA. Our bodies are triggered by that famine to search for food and eat whatever they can to store food up for the next time there's a famine. And here's the thing. Your body does not know the difference between a diet or a famine. It doesn't know the difference between you restricting your food to lose weight or there being an actual absence 
abundance of food or enough food. Your body doesn't know the difference. It, it also doesn't know the difference between you mentally telling yourself that you can't eat this or that, or that you should only eat X amount that's not really enough, and they're actually not being enough food. So it triggers that response as well. You might be thinking, okay, so I need food to survive, and that's fine, but I don't need sugar to survive, so I can abstain from that. But no, your body needs sugar. Sugar is a carbohydrate. It's naturally found in a lot of foods like fruits and vegetables. It's also added into other foods that, sure, you don't necessarily objectively need to live, but subjectively, you kind of do. It's in foods that you have nostalgic ties to, foods that you love, foods that taste good, foods that nourish your soul. It can be a part of what makes food really satisfying and meets that need. So in a way, you do need it to live. Plus, sugar isn't going anywhere. It's going to be around in your life. And you want to be able to coexist with it peacefully rather than feeling addicted to and obsessed with it all the time. Because whether it's mental or physical, restriction will create a biological response that is impossible to fight against. But I will just wrap up this part by saying you can actually genuinely heal those feelings because the feelings of being addicted to food are real. You can repair your relationship with food, then you don't have to deal with it for the rest of your life. It will actually be healed and it will be gone. And I know that because not only do the studies show that, but I also felt it myself for six years. I felt addicted to food. I felt like I had a real problem. If there were sweets in my house, they would be gone. If I was going to eat something, it would turn into a free-for-all binge. I did not feel in control. I felt like I thought about food all day long and I was never truly at peace with my body or around food. And now I can genuinely say that for about six years now, I have not felt addicted and I will never feel that way again because I nourished my body effectively and I repaired my relationship with food and with my body. So it it does not for you too ever have to be a thing that you deal with again. It's not a genuine addiction where you have to deal with it for the rest of your life and try to control it and try to avoid it. This is something that you can heal from and move on from. Feeling like you're addicted to food is absolutely in the realm of eating disorders and disordered eating. So I, I would never dismiss that feeling. This feeling is something that you can heal from because you really can only restrict for so long. And then you turn to that binge and it does feel very addicting and very powerful. Like you can't even stop if you wanted to. And that's kind of the the marrying of binge eating and food addiction. It's so overpowering that you just become almost a different person and there's nothing to stop you. So all that is real and you still have to find a way to be able to eat food. And when I talk about all this, this is not just my opinion. I'm saying food addiction is not an addiction in the true sense of the word. There is a body of evidence and research that supports that as well. When people often refer to food addiction and the evidence that says it's the thing that sugar is, you know, just as addictive as cocaine. And there's this scientific research out there that says food addiction is real and there's brain imaging and look at how the reward centers and people's brains light up with particular foods. And so if you are sort of looking at that from the diet mentality, it, it could seem like scientific support for this idea of food addiction, but how might you interpret that from a different lens? The first thing that I want to say when it comes to the research is that food addiction research is really new. There actually has been 
a lot of research on food addiction, but it's mainly been done in rats. So the research that's actually been done in humans is very, very inconclusive. And assuming what we're seeing in studies done on rats is something that we sort of immediately translate into human experience, you know, which happens outside of a cage of a study and has a host of other factors that are really, really complicated. We need to take some of this research in context and be very, very careful about not extrapolating it out because it's not real life. But you have results that, you know, in some ways do kind of validate some theories on food addiction. And then you have results that counter that. And so we don't actually have a lot of human studies and the results just are not consistent at this stage. And the research that that is out there for the most part is not great, right? Just because it's research and it's out there and it's published does not mean that it's scientifically sound. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand that. So they Google it and they Google the research and they read an open access study that looks legit and they go right to the summary and it says that the conclusion is that food addiction or sugar addiction or whatever it is, is real. Or a blog writer or reporter does that, they Google it and they're not educated on how to read and interpret and critically analyze research. And the next thing you know, there's this article going viral about how you're addicted to sugar and all this because here's the study and then it becomes just so challenging to get it out of people's minds because it's an emotional thing, right? And people feel very deeply about this and they read this article and go, oh my gosh, this is exactly how I'm feeling. This is it. This explains it. I'm addicted. And it just really resonates. So it sticks with people and it spreads like wildfire and it's really hard to undo that. Another thing that I want to mention when talking about the research is that there has yet to be a formal definition of food addiction. And so we're using this term that we all sort of, you know, are developing our own thoughts on what about what it means when no one is actually specifically defining it. So are we talking about a specific substance like sucrose or are we talking about a big group of foods? What, what does it actually mean? So that's another thing to know at this stage. We don't even have a formalized definition for food addiction, which is a big problem. Food, it's, it's meant to be rewarding. And there's nothing pathological about that. We are we are meant to experience pleasure and have those responses in the brain. It is meant to light up those reward pathways in the brain. So when it's time to eat again, we're driven and we're compelled to eat and not get distracted by some other task. And then we die because we haven't eaten enough. And I, I totally hear that all the time, right? Like if it activates dopamine and serotonin, then automatically that means an addiction. Like it's not good for us. But There are so many other things that are beneficial to us that activate those same pathways that we would never, ever dream of thinking of as an addiction. And so, yes, we see neuroimaging in the research where those pleasure centers light up, but we also see them light up when a mom holds her baby, listening to good music, hearing a funny joke, winning a prize, being in love, breastfeeding your child. So, you know, I've never heard of anyone and hopefully this never happens, but like somebody walking up to a mom breastfeeding her baby and saying, you really need to stop that because that's an addictive behavior. That's, you know, activating your pleasure centers in your brain. You need to stop that now. Just because it's activating those pathways does not mean it's an addiction. We see those pleasure centers light up when we're doing things that make us happy not because we're addicted. The other thing to think about when it comes to the research is the concept of Pavlovian conditioning, meaning that if we are kind of expecting something to happen, we're going to see it happen. 
And so with food, if we expect, you know, that if when I eat this food, I'm going to be out of control, that can continue to set you up to have these sort of repeat experiences. And neuroimaging research is actually really, really interesting because what we see in some of this research is that when a food is restrained or restricted, it has an exaggerated response in those pleasure centers in the brain. We want the thing that's forbidden. And so the more you say, no, 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 I can't, I shouldn't, don't, that's bad, the more enticing it becomes. So that means that when we study people's brains and we show things like, you know, a cupcake on the screen, there's a bigger response to a cupcake than maybe there is to an apple. And that is a conditioned response. And so we have to put the neuroimaging research in context of our food beliefs and our food history. There's this one study that's talked about really, really often when it comes to sugar addiction, especially. It was a rat study. And basically what happened was they starved these rats. They did not give them any food. After a period of restriction, they gave these rats access to both drugs and sugar. What do you think the rats went for? They went for the sugar. The conclusion that happened as a result of this study was that sugar is more addictive than cocaine and more addictive than heroin. But one thing that's really interesting is that this kind of provides evidence against sugar addiction, right? Because yes, when the rats ate the sugar, it you know lit up those addiction neural pathways as strong as it does for drugs like heroin. However, this only happened when the rats were deprived of sugar and adequate food. When the rats were given free access to sugar, they didn't display that addiction-like behavior. It was the restriction that fueled the addictive-like behaviors. And this kind of actually supports a non-diet intuitive eating aligned approach to sugar. Because when you're given that full unconditional permission to eat sweets, people tend to eat sweets in a pretty, you know, competent and balanced way. So that's just something that's really interesting to kind of take into account when it comes to all of the information that's out there on sugar and addiction and food and addiction, everything. Another really important piece with the research is that a lot of the studies are using the Yale Food Addiction Scale. Now, this scale is supposed to measure what might be food addiction in humans, but I have a bone to pick with it because the food addiction scale does not account for food restriction. So how is it possible that the food addiction scale can measure any degree of addiction if we aren't accounting for restriction and restraint when we know from the research that restriction creates a draw to food, a heightened response to food, and likely an experience of eating food that feels more out of control or chaotic. It is technically a validated tool, but it's been validated in kind of incomplete ways, right? They're not disqualifying people who have any kind of diet history, and they're also not assessing if people think that certain foods are bad or any other kind of psychology towards certain foods. Because again, we know that if somebody's been on a diet before, even if that was, you know, for a very brief period, or even if it was a long time ago, or even if they think that sugar is bad, their behavior toward that food and also their mindset around that food is going to be really affected by that thought or by their past diet history. Because even the thought of food is bad, or even the experience of maybe, you know, going on Weight Watchers for two months is going to impact their neurochemical response to eating that food or even thinking about that food. So, 
For example, if someone had, let's say, decided to not have chocolate for three months and then they're at a, a friend's, you know, kid's birthday party and then there's these really delicious looking brownies and they decide that today is going to be the day that they're going to allow themselves to have that brownie. Their dopamine response to that food, to eating that brownie is going to be so much higher than the person next to them who eats brownies once in a while, but doesn't have like a negative association with these brownies because that thought itself that it's forbidden, that it's a forbidden food, when they're engaging and eating it again, and they've gone without it for so long, it's going to increase that dopamine hit and it's going to taste a lot better to them than to anybody else. That is going to make them feel like they're more addicted and more out of control with a certain food. So it's it's really impossible to validate a tool like that if you're not also accounting for the fact that so many people in society have gone on restrictive diets and have these really black and white views about food. It's just a massive problem with this scale. And it's treated in the research as sort of the gold standard. The other thing is that this scale has not been used or or validated for people with active eating disorders. And some studies show that about three quarters of women have some form of disordered eating or eating disorder. So, you know, it's not very accurate. We need to kind of test this scale out when we have full recovery, when we've healed all the wounds from dieting, from restriction, from eating disorders, and then see if this is going to be an indicator of perhaps, you know, a very, very small subset of the population who have an actual chemical addiction to food. But I'm not sold on this being a useful or valuable tool until we get this piece figured out. So what's coming out of the research as well as my experience, is that as we learn how to safely introduce food, get reacclimated, give permission, get nutritionally repleted, is that the feelings that feel like addiction dissipate over time. Another piece that I find really important with food addiction is that I just feel worried about the concepts of food addiction for some people because it's something that causes them to feel really disempowered. And maybe you felt this way at some point. People will come to see me after being in, you know, Overeaters Anonymous or like a 12-step group for some sort of self-defined food addiction because they feel out of control around food. And that, you know, that was the thing that sort of best described with them, with their behaviors. And so they got involved with this food addiction group. They proceeded to restrict a bunch more foods and you know, had to send a plan of what they're going to eat to their sponsor, or they had to, you know, express remorse if they ate something that wasn't on their food plan, or all of these really just shaming approaches that made them feel worse and worse about themselves. And then finally, they sort of, in whatever path they take, you know, get a diagnosis of an eating disorder or sort of get tuned into the idea of intuitive eating. And then they come to work with me and they develop a healthy relationship with food that they can look back on and say, oh my gosh, two years ago, I thought I was addicted to sugar. And now if I eat it, I'm fine. I can move on and I don't feel out of control. You know, So there's hope. Even if people feel in the depths of food addiction right now or feel like they have an addictive relationship with food, it won't always be that way. And you can absolutely heal that. One other thing that I do want to say is that you know, many people who have experienced feeling out of control with food and perhaps would describe themselves as being addicted to food or to sugar is that they have had experiences in the past where they've tried to give themselves permission, fill up with all the foods, surround themselves with food, give themselves permission. And I, you know, that is part of intuitive eating, but I kind of disagree with this approach because 
what tends to happen is that people haven't developed the skill. And I think of eating as a skill, right? Of being able to eat foods in a way that feels balanced and that's moderate and that they tend to, you know, go on sort of a bender for several days when they're really just binging. And they sort of take that as proof of, well, look what just happened. I gave myself permission and I lost control. And that is why I love group coaching is because for people who have tried to do intuitive eating on their own, and it maybe felt that it's not going so well, working with somebody who specializes in it knows that there are different ways to go about giving permission to eat that they don't have to reinforce the feelings of being out of control and you know proving that they can't be trusted or maybe gaining unnecessary amounts of weight because they've attempted and done their very best, but it just didn't work. I had people coming to me saying, you know, I read the intuitive eating book, I tried to put it into practice, and all I did was was binge. And so doing it on your own, it, it kind of undermines the idea of permission, because they're going about it in a way innocently and, and not meaning to, but it's making them just continue to feel out of control. And maybe you can relate to that. Because when you do intuitive eating on your own, what I see really often is people not getting much further than this concept of like, make peace with food and all foods fit and give yourself unconditional permission to eat, which is such an essential part of intuitive eating. But it has to be within this framework and this context of also giving yourself other tools to help yourself feel good and know it's okay that when you you know first reapproach a food that was once off limits, you might still feel a bit out of control with it, but that that will dissipate over time. And that doesn't mean that the food is forever on the bad list, but you know, you sort of need to work systematically with the foods that are giving you trouble so that the hardest foods are not going to just lead to disappointment and frustration. So that's what we do in Food Freedom University, my group coaching program. It's teaching you the techniques and the ways to go about it that will help you feel less out of control in the process in ways that will make you feel more capable, more competent. And ultimately, that's how I want my clients to feel is more capable. And so if you are feeling addicted to food right now, what steps can you take? What steps can kind of get you closer to healing it instead of just dealing with the quote unquote addiction and trying to suppress it long enough to feel some relief and then, you know, relapse and back and forth and back and forth? What can you do to start taking those steps toward genuinely healing it? Number one, don't take the abstaining route. Realize that abstaining is making it worse, even if it works for a little bit. Having an understanding of this will help you so, so much because then you can go down the right path, which is so scary because if somebody says, oh, I'm addicted to gambling, so you should gamble more. I mean, nobody would ever say that, but food is different because the way to care for it is to do the thing more. It's habituating yourself to it. No other addiction is healed by doing the thing you're addicted to more often to do the drug more to become less addicted to it. But with food, it does work and it is terrifying because if you're in that place of feeling addicted, you're in that mindset around food, you're going to feel like that's so counterintuitive. You're going to feel like that's more harmful to you. And that's why so many people have this block around feeling, you know, this feeling of being addicted to food because that's the thing that's going to make them feel better. It sounds like it's going to make it feel worse, but that's the only thing. You're an addiction mindset. You need to shift and be like, well, this isn't an addiction. This is my biological response to restriction, both mental and physical. This is my biological response to trying to control my body size, trying to control my calories, trying to control what I eat. But when you go down that route and start allowing the food 
at first it might feel like, wow, I'm literally eating bread all day, every day. This cannot possibly be healthy. This is bad advice. I'm going to go back to what I was doing before. You know, you need to think about this as a long-term journey because, you know, for example, I now allow myself to eat whatever bread, bagels, potato chips, whatever carb things that I was afraid of before. And now that's not all I eat. I don't eat those things all day, every day. I eat some of them every day, but not all day, every day. I need lots of other nourishing foods in the day too. In the beginning of healing my relationship with food, one of the foods I started working on was bread. I had such a bad relationship with bread. I could literally eat a whole baguette. I was just so obsessed. And so what I did was I allowed myself to have bread every single day. And if I needed three slices, I had three. If I needed four slices, I had four. And that was a a really scary step, but it was pretty amazing how quickly binge eating stopped on its own. I didn't feel addicted to food anymore. And it's a cool process because yes, it will feel so scary taking those steps. But then one day you wake up and you realize that you're not feeling addicted to food, right? It might be a few weeks and you wake up and you say, oh, I feel better. How did I get here? Like that that transition and that transformation comes slowly, but it also comes so quickly that you don't even notice it happened because it's not this big, like, okay, I'm trying not to binge eat, you know, in counting the days. It's not as obvious as that. It's like, okay, I'm going to allow myself to eat more All of a sudden, you haven't binged in two weeks. You haven't even had the urge. You haven't even been trying not to binge eat. It's just that you haven't because your biology is changing. Your body is starting to trust you more and your mindset is changing. And so that is something that you can do is to allow those foods that you feel addicted to and refrain from thinking of it as an addiction and stop with the abstinence approach. And what I will say again is that there is more that goes into it, like I was talking about before. People can do this allowing this permission really wrong and make themselves feel worse. You need to have that physical step first of meeting your base needs and making it more of a safe environment. You need to start working on the mindset around it too, because if you're not doing the work of like why it's okay to have and allow these foods and, you know, how how did I get these stories and these beliefs in my head to think that I'm not allowed to have this in the first place? that needs to happen. There needs to be a bit of physical and mental foundation that is laid either alongside the permission or even first. So if that's working with a professional like an anti-diet dietitian like me who does this line of work and can help you take that step, it helps you move forward in a safe environment where you're having the mindset piece in addition to the physical so it doesn't become just another nasty cycle where you're kind of going at it without any direction and you're just like, wait, this is too much. And then you kind of freak out and then you go back and abstain again. And then it just puts you in another brutal cycle that does not feel good. That being said, if you are struggling with this and you do want support, my group coaching is starting January 9th or 11th. I have two groups that I'm enrolling for, for the start of 2023. I am currently taking consult calls for this, but spots are filling up fast. So if you're ready to dive in, if you're ready to commit and you want to get a bit more information about Food Freedom University, you can head to brittanyallisonrd.com slash group coaching. On this page, you can read a little bit about what's included. There's a button if you want to sign up for a consult, or there's a button where you can just straight up sign up. Your feelings of addiction can be gone, binge eating gone, other patterns that don't feel good gone. And once it's solid, it's yours forever. And you can live in that freedom, which feels so good. So you can get through food addiction, binge eating, whatever issues that are going on. I will absolutely be there for you and support you. And it's something that 
I really love doing. So I'm very excited to connect. That's it for today. I will talk to you next week.